from a technical definition standpoint, a CFO is really someone that is synthesizing financial information given to them by the accountants, the analysts, the reporting individuals within the finance area and coming up with the financial vision and coming up with the strategy and coming up with how is the financial function within the organization going to be structured to help other departments reach their goals and which in in those other departments then need to help the finance department reach their goals. So it's really more of a financial visionary versus the controller, the person that really has the keys to the accounting house, essentially, you know, they're doing the books and the budgeting and the the reporting and the it's really the CPA work. To be a controller, you should be a CPA in most cases. You know, there's always exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, you really should be a CPA. You don't necessarily need to be a CPA to be a CFO. In recent years, last say five, 10 years, more CFOs are CPAs just because of the stress on sound accounting compliance from a competitive standpoint, but it's not as required. It's not as needed in a CFO role. So that's really the difference. It's one is more the technical accounting and the other is really more the financial vision and strategy. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Welcome back to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. This is Nicole, and we have a very special guest in the office today. We have Lisa Rangel, the founding manager and director of an executive resume writing and job lending consultancy company, Chameleon Resumes. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And as well, on my side, I have a guest from Procurify. Our head of marketing, Matt Lim, is here. So it'll be the first time that we are co-hosting a podcast together, but we're really excited to chat with you and learn more about what you do. Hello to you both. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for asking me. So let's just start off by having you tell us what got you into the world of executive resume writing? And maybe tell us a little bit more about what you do. It's a fun story to tell. I've been in business since June 2009 doing executive resume writing and and job landing consultancy work. But prior to that, I was a recruiter in the finance world for 13 years, roughly. And when I was a recruiter, I was tweaking and writing resumes that I was of my candidates that I was sending to my client companies. So I quickly learned that the resume was at least a catalyst to my candidate getting an an interview at the client company, which when they got hired is how I got paid. So, you know, I learned pretty quickly that resumes were an important part of the process, essentially making a living. So that's essentially how I learned how to do them. Roughly the early part of 2009, I found myself laid off after the financial crash in 2008. And so many people at that time were out of work and needing help. And I loved recruiting, but I was a little burnt out at the time. So I just started writing resumes for people. And I I called it my productive unemployment for a little while. (laughs) And people needed the help. You know, they weren't sure how to how to write them, how to position themselves, how to speak to what the employer needed. There was obviously a lot of competition at that time. 
And it just sort of took off. And um, I decided in roughly 2011 that I would make it a serious business. And it's it's grown blessedly quite a, a bit since then. But um, that's how I started. I, so I do everything from a recruiter's perspective. Everyone on my team is a former recruiter, either search firm or corporate recruiting or both. And, and we do everything from a recruiting perspective. That's really cool. I think, especially for myself, when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm actually our technical recruiter here. So hearing how your journey's kind of evolved and you've seen this need, and I can definitely relate from seeing some resumes that it's a skill that I think oftentimes people take for granted. So it's really cool to see that you've built this uh, business model out of that. Thank you. It's been a great ride. I'm grateful every day. <laughs> Lisa, I noticed that you actually have a podcast called Pretend You're Fired Today. And one of the things you advocate is um, being proactive and doing achievement writing each week. That's one of the things that we stand for as well at Procurify. Uh, we're trying to get companies to adopt proactive spend cultures. And I was wondering, what are just some of the things that you get, uh, the executives that you're training about being proactive? You know, the inspiration for that podcast, I did it for a year, came from a specific experience, actually. Um, I had a, a colleague that I worked with in one of my prior to opening, opening my own business and working for someone else, I had a colleague who, despite a good record and a good tenure and, and excellent production, like just kind of found herself fired, for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, uh, she didn't, her management didn't see eye to eye and it just kind of like took her knees out from under her. And then a couple of months later, my direct boss, who was with the company a couple of decades, just shy of a couple of decades, was also let go. And when my friend, who is the first person who initially got let go, kind of came to her senses and, and got her legs back under her, essentially, she said to me, you know what, you can't think you're immune from this. And because I had been with my company at the time, nine years, and she's like, you have to pretend you're fired today, write a list down of everything that you would do to do the job search, and then just start doing it in small incremental pieces, not in some self-sabotaging, everybody can see that you're looking for a job kind of way, but just write your resume. Don't, you know, while you still have access to all your information, write your LinkedIn profile, but in a way that markets your company. So you're not like sending red flags that or flags out that you're looking for a job. You know, start making lists of people that you haven't spoken to in a while. Start making lists of companies that you would love to work for, but never really thought of how you would get in and you don't have a direct connection. How are you going to get in there in the first place? Start listing like achievement stories that you've done, telling them about what you've done in the last two, three years or at prior positions. Like just start having that information cataloged and ready. So if you are unexpectedly let go or on the positive end, some amazing opportunity just sort of falls in your lap. You know, you're not scrambling to get all this stuff done. And in the case of your let go, while you don't have access to it anymore. So, um, it, so the pretend you're fired today notion of being ready can really be for positive situations as well, and not only negative situations too. It's about being ready for opportunity as well as calamity. Yeah, Lisa, that's such a great outlook on, uh, I think, how people should approach their work. I think that sometimes it's very difficult for people to find the time to be proactive. What are some things that you do with your clients to help them highlight some of these achievements while they're still working? Or do most of the clients that you work with, are they already looking for a job? It's a mix. We have some people that are proactive. Probably about 30% of the people that hire us are employed and being proactive. They're not actively looking for a job, but they want to just be ready and maybe put some feelers out. But they're, they, it's more about like surveying the marketplace and not necessarily about leaving. 
you know, probably like a middle 40-ish percent are people who are working and actively looking for a job. You know, either they, they know an end is coming or they didn't get taken on in the merger and acquisition phase. They were given a package. And then there's individuals that have been laid off or let go and they find themselves struggling. And so they come to us needing help. So it's a little bit of all of that. But everyone should be proactive. And some ways that we tell them to be proactive are, I tell people to keep a folder whether it's in a personal email account, I wouldn't do it on a work email account because again, if you don't have access to it, it's not going to help. And just email yourself stories, email yourself notes. They don't have to be these fully worked out resume bullets or, or diatribes of stories or whatnot, but just the mental notes of things. And then you'll have it dated and you can just go in a folder. Just email yourself and have it go in a folder, a personal folder. And then at least you have it listed. I mean, some people suggest a notebook. Some people keep a running document on their uh, desktop and or on their phone and just make notes as they go. Um, you know, if you do use a note function on your phone, I would be leery if you do get a new phone, it, you may lose the note. So just make sure that it's someplace that if you change your phone or upgrade software on a desktop that you're not going to lose what you used to have. Um, so that's the only cautionary tale I will tell you. But the key is to set reminders on a calendar, on a reminder function on your phone, like, you know, every two weeks to just like update something. So, you know, you should do it as you go, as things happen, but at least put in a monthly or biweekly or, you know, at the longest, I'd say a quarterly reminder to go start updating stuff and keeping it, try not to keep it where it's more than three months old at any given point. I think that's a really good point to make. I know that even when I'm asked about things that I've done, or most people when they're asked about things, it's kind of hard to come up with that on the spot or recall all the things that you've done, especially when we're working in fast-paced environments. So I think that's such a good point to make, whether you're looking for a job or not, just to be able to reflect on the things that you're doing. And these types of stories, they're not just even for when you're you know, unexpectedly laid off. Like I mentioned, the one positive scenario is somebody, recruiter calls you and it's an amazing job. We had someone over the weekends, you know, it was a friend of a friend who was referred to me and that person was tapped to apply to a huge, awesome opportunity, next level opportunity promotion within their organization. And while in that situation, the person's uh, reputation is preceding them because it's their own organization that they've worked at and they know the person and they're tapping this person to apply for the promotion but I can tell you the resume didn't really fit the part of that promotion. And so if it was a competitive situation, and I believe it was, we, we, the timing wasn't going to work out where we can help them. But the point is, is like, even if it's an internal promotion by not having it ready, it's going to be hard to sometimes position yourself to be packaged in the right way, the most competitive way you can for the position, even if it's internal. So it can be promotions. It's just a matter of being ready. Now, you're never going to be perfectly ready all the time, but the key is it shouldn't be that you haven't looked at your resume in two and a half years. Or if you have 10 years or 20 years experience, or you know, I know a lot of your listeners are just starting out in finance, even if it's five years, your, your resume shouldn't be the career center format that you had five, 10, and don't get, I've seen this 20 years ago that you've just added to each, you know, every year. Um, it should be an updated format you know, that's not from the career center, the college career center. So just things like that. You just want to always make sure that it's not just modern language, modern updated achievements, but a contemporary layout. 
That's actually very important, not just for promotion purposes, but even in marketing, sometimes it's like this ambiguous world where people are like, what do you guys really do? And having a list of the reoccurring achievements that are happening a week to week or even month to month, right. it's just important to be able to celebrate that. And then you gain more confidence looking back and seeing all the things you've actually accomplished rather than looking back after like such a large period of time. It's very difficult to know all the things that you actually accomplished in that time frame. Right. Helps with raises too, performance evaluations too. So <laughs> even keeping your job, it can be helpful. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, you kind of touched on even for people that are just starting out in their careers, which is a majority of our audience. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the difference between the qualifications of a CFO versus a financial controller from your experience? Absolutely. So from a technical definition standpoint, a CFO is really someone that is synthesizing financial information given to them by the accountants, the analysts, the reporting individuals within the finance area and coming up with the financial vision and coming up with the strategy and coming up with how is the financial function within the organization going to be structured to help other departments reach their goals and which in, in those other departments then need to help the finance department reach their goals. So it's really more of a financial visionary versus the controller, the person that really has the keys to the accounting house, essentially, you know, they're doing the books and the budgeting and the, the reporting and the, it's really the CPA work. To be a controller, you should be a CPA in most cases. You know, there's always exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, you really should be a CPA. You don't necessarily need to be a CPA to be a CFO. In recent years, last, say, five, ten years, more CFOs are CPAs just because of the stress on sound accounting compliance from a competitive standpoint, but it's not as required. It's not as needed in a CFO role. So that's really the difference. It's one is more the technical accounting and the other is really more the financial vision and strategy. That's really interesting. Are there some ways that someone who's never been a CFO can show companies that they're ready to take on this role? So if somebody's been, you know, like a director of financial reporting or a VP of finance, and they're coming up that track versus the CPA track, when you start getting into the CFO role and really almost any C-level role, it's really looking at not just the technical expertise, in this case, accounting or finance, but it's really now about people management. Can you procure the right talent to work within the organization? How do you mobilize and motivate that talent? So, you know, succession planning within the financial department. Are you of the caliber of a leader that is going to attract the right talent? You know, how does this person interface with all the other different departments? Because, you know, financial now is so much to do with technology you know, all fintech. And so you really need to be one-on-one -on -one with a CIO and you need to have an understanding of that area as well and how it affects finance and how finance affects technology. You know, marketing nowadays, there's immediate offers made. And, you know, it depends on the business, but it can be like immediate offers made and how offers are packaged and, and presented to clients online or verbally, but all the financial structure of that needs to be approved by finance. So the deals are profitable 
but they need to factor in how they can be marketed to be digested and purchased by the buyer, whether it's a B2C or a B2C, a B2B type of situation. So that's where marketing and finance have to work together. So it's showing that you can interface with other departments, that you can lead people in addition to having the technical expertise to manage the technologists. And by technologists, in this case, I mean the financial experts. You still need to garner the respect of the people who are going to do the financial legwork that you're managing. So um, that's really how you can start to position yourself as somebody who's ready for the next step when you embody those three areas in terms of, you know, liaising with other departments, procuring talent, as well as being able to manage the experts that you're going to be hiring underneath you. Yeah, that's a very interesting points that what we're seeing a shift over over at Procurify. People, especially CFOs, are no longer just advocating, here's what the software you're going to use. They go from a people standpoint first and then understand the process that would fit the people. And then that's when they decide the tools that they're going to use. Right. Um, oftentimes when you're being hired as a CFO, and we see quite a lot of interim CFOs or controllers uh, who end up using Procurify, mm-hmm. they, they have to lead teams that they're moving into. The teams are already established. What are some of the ways that you've seen success for a a new leader joining a a team of established people? As simplistic as this may sound, I I think they have to demonstrate that they listen and they can assess what's going on, respect what's been going on up to that point, whether they're being brought in for change or to maintain. Uh, The key is, I think, to do a sound assessment and make sure people feel heard, even if they're not in agreement with you. People will respect your work if they know that you've at least taken the time to listen and synthesize. And even if you disagree, they've maybe taken the time to help connect the dots as to how the goals are still being met, even if you don't agree on both how you're getting there. So I think first and foremost, it comes down to listening. And then I think there's, you know, the credentials that you have to lead and that you're not afraid to take the, make the difficult decisions, communicate rationale that you, when it's allowed, sometimes it's prudent to keep things confidential, obviously, but when it's permissible and and prudent to, you know, put rationale behind decisions so people understand. And then that also shows that you're training people as to how to make sound decisions. So then eventually they'll do the same thing. If they see how you think, and learn how you're doing it, they'll be able to, in some cases, replicate it, or at least start to present you solutions that are in the way that you think that you can then make better decisions. So I think it's like involving them and listening to them and having examples of that and and showing that right from the beginning. Yeah. So being curious about what's already happening and how you can improve that. And really looking at like creative problem solving. You know, if a company is having, if you're being brought on because they're having financial troubles and you're being brought in to fix it, coming up with really what would be creative to the company, not necessarily to the new CFO or the interim CFO, but ways to come up with making the business profitable or getting additional financing. They, you know, they have the ability to get bank financing because they have relationships or they can, they know how to create the relationships in a credible manner that get the financing. So it's just, I think being able to be creative with solutions that fix problems also bring about respect. A lot of the points that you're making about what makes a good CFO or actually any leader um, are the soft skills. And I'm on the receiving end as well as Nicole on so many resumes. It's very difficult to actually be able to differentiate between applicants. Are there ways that you advocate, um, like you can show the leadership 
skills that you might have on a resume when you don't have the opportunity to explain it face to face? I think if you can quantify and describe situations, and sometimes you can't quantify, but I'd say in most cases you can always describe, you know, where you've promoted somebody, how many people do you train, whether it's officially or unofficial, how many mentees have you had in a given time period, how you have trained others and what they have gone on to do clients you've been able to retain, you know, maybe you've structured things financially with clients that it's still profitable for the organization and it's still financially digestible for the client to stick around. And as a result, you kept X amount in revenue to the, you know, to the organization. When people write their resumes on their own, they typically write them in very much like a task driven manner where it almost looks like a job description with their name on it. Sometimes I always say for each of those bullets, ask yourself, how do you know you did a good job doing that task? And what did that good job look like? Like, tell me how you know you did a good job at doing that task. That therein lies your your achievement. You know, in finance, it's sometimes even a little easier to come up with a quantifiable achievement because it's essentially a number. It's finance. But how did you make money, save money, streamline a process, save labor, mitigate risk, contribute to a company culture? You know, maybe there's committees you've joined. What were the results of being on those committees? I wouldn't say that you just joined the committee. I would say a goal that you were a part of and being in that committee. So those are some of the areas that you can craft bullets that are more achievement-like and less task-like to convey not only hard skills, but it's, it's doable with soft skills as well. You know, how many people in your department, um, how many of them did you train when they started? If you're a manager, how many of your individuals were promoted into new roles over the last year? or during your tenure with the company? What's your retention rate in your department? Because that obviously shows if you have a a good retention rate that people are sticking around, you you know, it implies you're a good manager, things like that. Yeah, I have to uh, probably work on my own achievements. (laughs) I've been here for so long that I kind of, my resume hasn't been touched in, in years. And I know probably that's something I have to update. Task one when we were more off today, right? I work in marketing and over the last, I guess, 10 years, the marketing tech stack has just exploded. How do you think like the tech stack for finance is going to evolve over over the years? You know, I, I left recruiting almost 10 years ago and it was exploding in the midst of my six, seven year mark. You know what I mean? It's been and it's just I'd say it's less explosive now and more merged. You know, financial and technology are almost like symbiotic sometimes, as marketing and technology are too. You know, I just think they've become more integrated. And to be in finance, you need to know how to work certain tools or show the ability that you can get ramped up on certain tools. You know, it's you're never going to know every tool. And if you're going from a large company to a small company or vice versa, I mean, there's different tools that are better with, you know, enterprise versus small business. So, I mean, it's it's hard to know every tool. You really need to demonstrate that you can pick up tools and that you have that ability to do so and that you can navigate among systems and that you can not only just, and that you can take the information from these different systems and make better decisions. That's really what it comes down to. You know, there's no point in having all these systems if you're not making better decisions. And as you get higher up the financial food chain, you want to demonstrate that you know how to synthesize information to make decisions that wouldn't have been made if you didn't have this information. Yeah. So you always have to be continuously learning, I guess. Right. 
I mean, I've listened to some of your podcasts and it's, it's clear to me that you're consistently learning. Uh, are there any blogs or books that you would recommend for aspiring finance professionals or even just for career development? From a technical side, there's probably, and it depends on what type of finance, obviously, that you're in. I would say different trade publications based on the industry that you're in. If you want to have a little bit of an edge as a CFO, being up to speed on accounting concepts and and regulations can help you then bridge that and have the respect of your accounting brethren as a finance professional. That can be helpful. I think it can be a differential for a CFO because there's a lot of individuals that go into finance. There's not a lot of individuals that go into accounting and the CFOs that have a expertise in accounting, and I don't necessarily mean as a CPA, but I just mean even simply as knowledge, can find themselves in an envious position because they know how to speak essentially both languages and they can interface between both groups and they have the respect of both groups. Depending on the type of business, payments and ease of making, you know, ease of payments for especially B2C businesses is huge. So different you know, there's tons of blogs like Payment Source and other blogs on the mobile payment industry from like a higher level finance. I mean, I love reading things from like the consulting firms like Deloitte and Accenture, IBM. They each have their own professional differentiating type of blog, um, you know, one for tech, one for finance, one for marketing. So you're getting the consulting end of, you know, consulting perspective. There's blogs on like FinTech Summary and, and other blogs on just financial technology. So, you know, so I would say whatever your passion is, because it's hard to have, you know, your hand in all this stuff, but um, whatever your passion is, sign up for like one or two of those. And then just once a quarter, twice a quarter at the minimum, you know, just sort of spend a half a day researching other areas that are maybe not as intuitive or not as passionate for you, just so you're still aware of what's going on. Pick an area that you really find yourself passionate about and become very well versed in it and then know where to tap for resources and information on the others to come across that you're knowledgeable in, in a lot of different areas. It's impossible to know all different areas, but I think it's about becoming an excellent researcher and having absolutely no problem saying, I'm not sure about that answer, but let me research it and get back to you. <laughs> and then you know how to find it. Yeah, thank thank God for Google. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's so hard to break through the noise. Obviously, as a marketer, that's something that we face all the time. And if there's one message that you could get for finance leaders, what would that be? Specifically for finance leaders and, and aspiring finance leaders is don't ignore the non-financial aspects of your job. You know, it's easy to amass knowledge of your technical area, in this case, finance. But I find as you start to rise through the ranks and you start to become more of a manager, or, you know, director, executive level, those that truly succeed aren't necessarily the ones that know most about finance. The ones that typically succeed are the ones that are very good at the other aspects, the other non-financial aspects of their job. And that's liaising with other departments, you know, looking at the corporate goals as a whole and how the finance fits into the supporting those goals you know, managing people, attracting talent. I think that's the key in terms of being a successful financial leader. You can be a senior financial practitioner, right? So whether it's financial reporting or tax or accounting, if you want to be more of an expert practitioner, you can even still be the tax manager, right? But it's if you're still a practitioner, then it's maybe more equally weighted between 
the non-financial and the financial um, expertise. But I think as you start to rise through the ranks, it almost becomes a little skewed and it's more weighted on the non-technical aspects of the job. And that's where you start to be successful in terms of managing the experts and being of the caliber that attracts the experts. That's the type of person you want to be as you start to go up through the ranks. I think that's such a good point to make. And I know when I've spoken with different CFOs and financial leaders, it's something that comes up quite often is it's the things that they've learned and developed beyond their field of expertise. And it's not just about being an accounting whiz. There's a lot of other things that come with it. And I think you made a good point of it's the difference between kind of being an expert in accounting versus being a leader or someone that can mentor other people. Well, I mean, it happens to a lot of people in every different level, you know, every different profession. I mean, it happened to me in recruiting, you know, I was a good recruiter and then you get promoted and then you're recruiting alongside of your team of recruiters. And then you get promoted again and you're overseeing five managers of offices of recruiters. So now you're not really recruiting as much because you're managing managers who recruit and manage recruiters. And then you get promoted again and you're absolutely not recruiting anymore, you know, and it's more the strategy of the company and how do you get more recruiters? How do you find managers? How do you structure the fee structure? So you're still profitable based on the commissions you're paying out. And then before you know it, I was like, I'm not even recruiting anymore. And I actually used to like doing that. So you know, that's what, that's what, that happens to a marketer, that happens to a finance person, that happens to an HR person, that happens to every function within a company. Once you start coming up through the ranks, you're not doing what you initially used to do. And if you truly love doing the finance aspect of it, then position yourself more as a technologist, you know, a practitioner. You still need to do the people skills and that kind of thing, but it's going to be a lot different than if you're going for the C-suite. And one's not better than the other, right? You need both functions for a company to function. But um, but you have to realize once you start going on the C's le- the C-level track, you're not going to be as much of a practitioner as much as you are a leader of people and resources. That's such a good point to make and great for people to keep in mind at all levels of their kind of career journey. And I know Matt and I are both feeling very inspired right now to go and look over our resumes and make some changes. But is there one piece of advice that you'd like to leave with our audience for anyone who's now going to go back and also look over their resumes? You know, I think if you don't have a goal in mind of a job, that is not that you don't have goals, but just if you don't have a specific job that you're catering towards, then I think the key is to just write down the things that you, the, the situations that you felt good about. If you're unsure you know, without setting off red flags, you can ask colleagues if you have a great relationship with your boss, um, what they're proud of you that you've done, you know, what colleagues come to rely on you for is a good place to look at some of your, you know, where your wins are, what you tend to be the go-to person for, you know, ask how do you, you know, nobody has a job out of charity, especially nowadays. So, you know, clearly they keep you in that job because you're doing something right. So what are some of those things that you do right? You don't want to say you're the best at something because that's superlative. You want to be specific in terms of, I know it's more of a finance podcast, but if it's marketing, like how many opt-ins did you get? Or if it's finance, you know, what was the savings? What was the, the you know, as a result of price, you know, doing a pricing structure change, what was the profit increase? Or, you know, so try to measure it as much as you can. And if it's not something that's measurable, then what was the impact? You know, why does it matter? usually that therein lies the answer of it being a result-driven or an accomplishment-driven bullet. 
Yeah, well, I think that's great advice and definitely something that everyone who's listening can take away from regardless of the area of expertise that they're working in. And if you do have a goal, like say you do want to be the controller, if you're currently an accounting manager, or if you do eventually want to be on the C-level, the C-suite, uh, CFO suite, look at the achievements that demonstrate the job you want. Ever since I started working, which, you know, was like a long time ago, I've always had the saying that I kind of lived by is like, do the job that you want now, then you get it. So you can't say I want that job and then not start doing that job until you get promoted because that's not going to happen. Once people see that you have the parts and the components, that doesn't mean you won't get trained or mentored or or um, sent away for coaching or something like that. But you got to show the, the raw skills. You got to show the achievements, you got to show the components that some that's going to make a manager or an executive or a hiring committee want to invest more in you. So I'm a big believer in do the job that you want now, and then you'll be positioned to get it. And that's how you should write a document. Yeah, absolutely. A lot like dress for the job you want. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like Matt and I alone have learned so much and this was such a good insight for us and a little bit different than guests that we've had on before. And obviously myself working in talent acquisition, this was extra special for me. So we're really, really grateful to have you join us and we really appreciate it. Definitely keep in touch. And uh, I, I was really honored to be on, on the show today. So I really appreciate you, you inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.